Well, I'm honored to be here this evening. You know, last year I was here and I participated, but I, I didn't imagine that the very next year I would be the one up here preaching for us, uh, and that's, it's just a huge honor, and um, it really has been wonderful to get, to get to know so many of you. In fact, one of the churches here is actually hearing me preach for the second time today, which I warned them about, um, so I hope that, there's my water, I hope they'll continue to be blessed, that the, the Lord will use me uh, despite, despite my shortcomings. Uh, but the text we're going to look at tonight to think through this idea of our particular communion with God the Father and love is 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12. So if you want to turn there, uh, we'll read this passage, and uh, I'll briefly pray for us and then begin thinking through uh, what the Lord is saying to us here in 1 John. So 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another. God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for this day of rest and this unique way this evening we can come together and worship you with your body and now come and hear your word together. And many of us come burdened, worn out, troubled by many things, and yet we praise you that, that we can know you will meet us in your word, that you will give us comfort and peace there illuminate our minds, open our hearts by your Spirit, help us to pay attention to your Word, to receive the truth that's there with faith and love and humility, and we pray it would bear fruit in our lives and help us to see even more, particularly tonight, the beauty the glory of you sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sins. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, John Owen's communion with God is probably not the first thing that you would expect to see a college student reading as you walked into a coffee shop on campus. I know I would be floored if I walked into Starbucks at IUP and, and saw that book in someone's hands. I would probably immediately go up and introduce myself 
to that person and, uh, and try to get them, find out what their deal was and get them involved with RUF. Um, but as, as much as I'm saying this is a theoretical situation, that was actually a real situation for me when I was in college. If you had run into me my sophomore year, you would have found this little book in my hands, which especially would have been a little weirder with John Owen and you know his, his uh, English wig there. Um, you would have found me with this. Now, now, why in the world did I have this as a college student who, like many other college students, my primary concern was being cool and others thinking that I was cool? Why was I reading this book? Well, the long story short was I was hungry for communion with God. And I was looking for it all kinds of places. I had some charismatic friends that invited me to their gatherings and they would speak in tongues and they would laugh in the spirit and it just didn't do much for me. It didn't connect. And so I, I, I hungered for this, and one day, I, one weekend, I went to an RUF fall conference, and one of the campus ministers was doing a, a, a seminar on sanctification, and he kept mentioning this guy named John Owen. I'm like, who is this guy? I won't stop talking about him. And so I went over to the book table they had there, and I, and I found this little book there and picked it up. And reading through that book took me to depths in my relationship with God that I, I really hadn't experienced before. And so it really was an honor when, when Jared called me up and, and asked me to do this. I thought, man, this is such a, a unique providential thing that, that I would get to revisit something that, you know, flipping through here, just seeing all the notes and the way in which uh, the Lord used this book in my life to point me to himself and to bring me into deeper communion. And why I say tell my own story here, but as Jared's already said, this is all of our story. That the, the whole Christian life is really about communion with God. And really, every human being made in the image of God was created for communion. That's, in some ways, it could be argued that the image of God, what's inherently going on there is we were meant to have a relationship with God, meant to have this communion God communion bond with him. And yet the way that fleshes out for us is with a God in three persons. And Owen really uniquely explored that. And I was thinking more and more about this, and I don't know if Owen says this, but really even the whole idea of communion comes from the Trinity. It is a God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our God who eternally communed within himself from all, all eternity. I'm saying it twice, just drive it home. It's the whole idea of communion comes from who God is. He is bringing us into that communion through our union with Christ. And so as we're brought into that it is still a relationship with three persons. So they are one God. And so each person has a different emphasis, and we're going to be looking, I've been asked, to focus on God the Father. And if you had to choose one word to describe the nature of our communion with God the Father, if you just scanned all of Scripture and really dug into it, you would find what Owen finds, that it is love. Owen called 
the Father's love, the great discovery of the gospel. In some ways, it's the focal point. It's what everything's flowing back up to. The Son comes to reveal the Father's love. The Spirit pours out the love of the Father into our hearts. And so the unique way that we commune with the Father is in the reception of this love and the return of it unto him. But you may be wondering, okay, if we're going to be looking at the Father, why did I choose a passage in which the word Father is not, it doesn't appear anywhere in that passage I just read. And this is where we have to put on our, our, our observation thinking caps for a little bit and realize that, that God often in the Bible is used, this generic theos in the Greek is used to refer to the Father. And we can figure it out just by the context. If God sent the Son, and we know the Son is equally God, then God here in this passage is designating the Father. That's, that's what Jesus is constantly talking about, that the Father has sent him. And there's other places, and the benediction we'll close with, that Paul's benediction, that the Trinity, we're one of the moments where we really see the Trinity in one verse, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. God there, too, is, is denoting the Father. And so in some ways, we might even reread this passage. I'll, I'll, I'll frame it, uh, just read a section of it here. Anyone who does not love does not know the Father because the Father is love. In this, the love of the Father was made manifest among us that the Father sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Of course, that might, that might be exaggerating it a little bit by, because of the unity of the Trinity, but I really think the emphasis here in this passage and what Owen saw is it's our communion with the Father and love. And so we're going to look tonight how we see that love, how he gives that love unto us, and then what it looks like when we receive it, and especially how that plays out in the Christian community. So in verse 1, John begins with this simple exhortation, let us love one another. He's already said it. He's going to say it a couple more times. And so you're starting to get the hint that maybe this isn't that easy if he's having to repeat it so many times. But here he gives a reason, a motivation. He says, love one another for love is from God. Where does love come from? What if you asked the average person on the street about that, if they were to trace its origins, to do research, where, where did we get this idea of love in the first place? You know, if we, we reject God's revelation of himself in the scriptures, we find ourselves in a little bit of a predicament in trying to answer this question. We don't really have many resources for explaining why should we love each other and what is love. You know, especially if you embrace a, a, a fully materialistic, evolutionary account of the world, it's really difficult for someone to say, for example, that the love they feel for their spouse is any more than just a chemical reaction going on in their brain. Maybe they can account for what's going on. It's a pragmatic development, the evolutionary cycle that's helping us to, you know, preserve our species. 
But there's nothing magical or spiritual or special about it. And yet, I don't even think the the most hardened atheist would want to tell his spouse that that the feelings he has for her are are just chemical reactions going on in his brain that, that his body is training so that he can preserve and propagate his line. That's not how we talk about love. No, when everyone loves, they sense that there's something heavenly about it. Love is from God. But love's not even just from a generic monothe- monotheistic God. Because if we, if we take that route, it's still difficult to account for love because love is an exchange between persons. Creation becomes necessary for God to love, and so love can't be an inherent attribute of God. Only in Christianity, only, the, only with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit can God truly be said to be love and for love to be from him. And this isn't to say that non-Christians can't love or have feelings of love. Rather, they're made in the image of God, as I was saying earlier, this communion God. We're made to have and exchange that love. But there's no rational accounting for love. There's no moral obligation to love apart from this revelation of the Christian God that he is love. And that love particularly comes out from the Father. That's what John, this is the starting point for communion with the Father. His love. That's why I've been harboring on this so much. And the fact that love is, is embedded in his very character. There's no deeper basis for our communion. He initiates, he loves first, and he does so because that's just who he is. But again, let's dig into more what, what is this love? Because love, love is such an exact, elastic word in the English language. I mean, think about it. I, I love my wife. I love my daughter. I love this cool new IUP hoodie that I bought. I love tacos. That's a lot going on there. What, what is it talking about here when it's saying God is love, that the Father is love? Well, here, I, you're going to get some Owen quotes. I, I really enjoyed just digging back into Owen uh, the past week or so. And he, I love this one articulation he gives of God's love and the, and the Father in particular. He says, the love of the Father is a love of bounty a descending love, such a love as carries him out to do good things to us, great things for us. It is the love of a spring, of a fountain, always communicating, a love from whence proceeds everything that is lovely in its object. It infuses into and creates goodness in the person's beloved. That's a whole nother level of love than our typical conception of love. Our love is always responsive. It it has a because that follows it. However, as we dive into the depths of God's love, we find it's its own cause. It's embedded in who he is. And this is what the Lord tells Israel 
In Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than other people. It wasn't because you were more lovely that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. It's his character. It's who he is. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, as he proclaimed to Moses on Sinai. It's a love, his love, that doesn't require the person being loved to be lovely. We should know that deeply. And it's a love that Owen really emphasizes. I think one of the quotes in the bulletins pointed this out, that it precedes Christ's death on the cross. It's, it's not like the Father hated us, and then, and then Jesus came in and died on the cross, and, and suddenly the Father's love, Father loved us now. No, it was the Father's love that sent Jesus to the cross. That's what was really being highlighted in the passage we read earlier in Ephesians 1, that he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. The cross demonstrates it, but the love was already there. And this brings us to another difference that Owen really chronicles. I can't even get into all of it, all the differences between our love and God's love, and then also where it's similar. But he also points out the unchanging nature of God's love. He writes, The love of God is like himself, equal, constant, not capable of augmentation or diminution. Our love is like ourselves, unequal, increasing, waning, growing, declining. God's love for us doesn't change. It isn't ultimately dependent on our behavior, which is really a staggering statement. Owen has to actually, he anticipates that objection. Well, if God, love, God loves us even when we're sinning, well, that's dangerous. But no, he does, even though he may, that love may come out as discipline, just as uh, when I know my daughter's going to drive me crazy. It already does drive me crazy sometimes, and we're thinking through how we may discipline her. But we're doing that out of love. The love is unchanging. The love is what everything is filtered through. But John can't talk long about the Father being love, about God being love, without speaking about this love uniquely made known to us in Christ. You know, a lot of people, again, I was kind of getting at this earlier, they like the idea that love is God. They like the idea of saying we should love one another. They even use that as like a trump card in conversations, like God's love. You can't say anything judgmental towards me. You can't call me out on anything. I think what's often happening there is love is, it's being flipped. Now love is God. We love each other, however we define love, and then we can just say something divine is happening there. Something's really special about that. God's just kind of this extra qualifier that, that makes love important. And I, I saw this with a couple of students I was talking to on campus. Um, 
we were, they were just kind of grilling me with different questions. Um, they were sitting around a table, and, and I was talking to them about how I, I really felt like so many people just miss the central message of Christianity, uh, that, you know, they just think, oh, it's about being a good person. And then one student burst out, yeah, it's about love. And I'm like, okay, that's good. That's better than being a good person. But what do you mean by that? And, and she just said, well, the message of Christianity is that everyone should love each other. I'm like, okay, uh, that's not the full picture. How do we even know what love is? It, that would be a futile message. Just, just grow up. Just be nice to each other. Come on, guys. Let's just get along. Let's love one another. That, that won't work, and John knows that won't work. And so he says, in this, in verse 9, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, to bear the wrath that we deserve, to atone, to take the punishment for our sin that we deserve. God's love has a very specific demonstration. It's not just abstract and out there. The Father's love is seen in how he sends Christ. Some, you know, again, I think some people in this passage, they read the call to, want to, love, to love one another, and they just think immediately that this is a self-generated love, that this is something we're all capable of if we just try hard enough. And that's, this, it's our sinful hearts just putting the focus again and again on ourselves instead of on God. God defines, he demonstrates, he empowers love, and the way he does it most profoundly is through his son. And I love how Owen... Again, I'm going to give you more Owen. He fleshes this out, how the Father's love flows to us through Christ. He writes, Love is first poured out on Christ, and from him it drops as the dew of Hermon upon the souls of the saints. Though the love of the Father's purpose and good pleasure have its rise and foundation in his mere grace and will, yet the design of its accomplishment is only through Christ. All the fruits of it are first given to him, and it is in him only that they are dispensed to us. So that though the saints may, nay, do see an infinite ocean of love unto them in the bosom of the Father, yet they are not to look for one drop from him, but what comes through Christ. He is the only means of communication. Love in the Father is like honey in the flower. It must be in the comb before it be for our use. Christ must extract and prepare this honey for us. He draws this water from the fountain through union and dispensation of fullness. We, by faith, draw from the wells of salvation that are in him. It is the Father's love that is coming to us, but it, it comes through Christ. That we, we gaze upon Christ and the cross and all that he has done and we are brought deeper 
into that love. We receive that love, and we can rest in that love. And I, I was thinking, you know, more about just the uniqueness of this, and another thing, you know, filtering in just different things in my experience this past week, it's been interesting, the Lord's providence, how it's brought into what, I, what I'm trying to communicate tonight. So recently, I, I've been getting together with an IUP professor and a few other grad students that have gotten to know a lot of Muslim students on IUP's campus. Um, and, I, and I had shown up to a Muslim, like this Islamic cultural day, and I, I met them there. And they invited me to the study where it's, they're doing a study on how to better share the gospel with Muslims. And the book that we're reading, basically it goes through kind of biblical history and key figures, and it, it talks about what the Quran says about these figures and then what the Bible says, and it kind of compares them and then, you know, builds some common ground, but also shows the uniqueness of, of the scriptures, revelation of, of these figures. Uh, and I was struck in particular this past week about what the author said uh, in regards to the whole incident with Abraham and sacrificing uh, his only son, Isaac. And he, he wrote this, many times I've asked Muslims whether Allah really loves them. And if he does, what has he done to prove it? And the answers usually follow the same pattern. They point to the very blessing of their lives or to times when he had answered prayers by the healing of diseases or saving them from financial crises. Others have mentioned children they did not think they could have or material benefits and possessions. And I've always responded by saying that without doubting that all these are expressions of his kindness and love, that these things all cost God nothing and do not affect him at all. What has God ever done for them that compares with what Abraham was called on to do for God? Has God matched this supreme example of love? A father tearing at the depths of his heart, being willing to give his only son? This cost Abraham. Indeed, it cost him the expression of his very own being. Has Allah ever done anything like that in return? Well, the Muslim can go no further. Allah in the Quran has done nothing to give something of himself. Indeed, something at the depth of his very own being to show his absolute love for humanity. Well, Christians do have an answer to that. What has God done to reveal his love? He has given something from the depth of his very being. I mean, I think John here might even be thinking of the Abraham and Isaac incident on Mount Moriah by the fact that he, he uses this phrase, his only son. God did what Abraham was being asked to do, so Abraham didn't have to do it. And it was love, again, that was motivating it. It wasn't the son forcing his hand. The father's love is what caused him to give his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the more we meditate on that and sit in that, the more we're drawn up into communion with the Father in love. And so as we turn to ourselves and thinking about what we do in this, in some ways it should be simple. We receive that love, we receive it by faith, John Owen talks a lot about 
just believing, not focusing so much on our emotions, but, but believing or to rest in it? What, what could be easier than receiving and resting in this love? And yet, so often we struggle with this. We doubt it. We question it. Yeah, as I was working on this sermon again, uh, and thinking about this, this theme of the believers communion with the Father, I kept thinking about a passage I've been Somebody, somebody in this room has kind of forced me to think about it over and over again in this Bible study we do every Tuesday. In the church, so I'm referencing David. In the church plant, we've been looking at the prodigal son. And many of you know that story. It's about a father that had two sons, and you know, one of them asked for his inheritance, effectively really sending the message, I wish you were dead so I can have the money that's owed to me. And then he goes off and, you know, he's, he spends it on all the stuff that young men think will make them happy. Uh, and then eventually he gets into poverty. He realizes, uh, this isn't really working out for me. Maybe I should go back to my father's house and I can at least be a servant. And he goes back and the father opens, op- welcomes him with open arms, runs to him, throws a huge party for him. And then there's this other brother who's looking in on this, and, and he doesn't want to go into the party. And he sits outside, and the father comes to him, imploring him to come in, even though he's outraged about this prodigal son. And he says, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Well, I think from one angle looking at that story, it's all about our struggle to receive and to rest in the Father's love. And it, Jesus is showing that, and I mean, you could call that story in some ways the, the great discovery of the Father's love in the gospel, but he's showing us that there are two, there's more than one way to do this. You know, it's easy for us to spot the outright rejection of the Father's love. We, we see people that want nothing to do with the people of God, that want nothing to do with the Father, want nothing to do with Jesus. And they go and, and they try to find what they're missing in all these other ways. And, and it can be easy for us, many in the church, to kind of look down on those people. And yet Jesus reveals that we can be in the house of God in the same position and still not resting in the Father's love. You know, maybe Owen ex- explores a lot how maybe it's just this idea of the Father's love is almost too much for us. It's too gracious. It's just too unbelievable. But then I think another thing that can happen is when difficult circumstances come our way, it's, we start wondering, does God love us? What, what's going on here? Why would he let this happen in my life? Why, why is he pouring out blessing on all these other people and then I'm, I got nothing? Yeah, I, I've, I've, I've been tempted to have those moments. I've had those moments. I shouldn't even say just tempted. Uh, as I am doing this RUF thing, starting a new RUF, and, you know, RUF's a southern thing. Started out just like the PCA started out in the south. It's slowly spreading out, and I'm thankful to be a part of that. But it's easier for me to look and, you know, see the RUF in my hometown of Knoxville, Tennessee, has like 300 or 400 people coming to that, and I'm like, why is all the blessing there? And like, I've got like five people coming to my Bible study. Like, 
What's up with that? It's, it's even in those moments that we're missing the opportunity to receive and rest in the Father's love. So that's the question for you. Where are you in that? Where are you receiving and resting in the Father's love? And John actually gives us, as we start to wrap up here, he gives us a way to maybe test that or, or think about that. Um, you may have been wondering, okay, John said we need to be loving each other. Like, he said this just as much as he said all this stuff about God being love. Why aren't you talking about that? Like, that's in the text. We should love one another. Well, as, as we conclude, I think we'll see here that this command to love, it still remains, but it's not a means of earning God's love, but it's actually a demonstration that we are communing with the Father in love, that we are believing and resting in that love. And in some ways, I'm kind of expanding upon Owen here. This is always a difficulty when you're trying to do something thematically, but you also want to go in the direction of what the text is actually saying. But I think it connects. So let's think about, think about this as we look at the last couple of verses here, 11 through 12. Beloved, if God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. I think what John is saying is, if we truly rest and receive that love, one of the ways we can know that's actually happening is there is love in our lives for others. It's, it's as if we are almost, we're doing the same thing as Christ. The, the Father's love is being poured out on us through the Son, just as it was poured out on the Son and comes to us. And it's being poured out on us, and it spills out towards those, everyone around us. It can't help but doing that. I think that's what John's getting at when he's saying God abides in us and his, his love is perfected in us. It's like this circuit is completed. Like Things are working how they were intended to do. That communion, that love that was in God from all eternity has come through the Son, come to us, and is spreading out through his church and is creating this beautiful thing. But I, I kept mulling over, what does perfected love mean? I think, like, as often Reformed people, we don't like the idea of perfect, especially speaking about ourselves. We know we're fallen. We know we will not be perfected, sinless. We will not be sinless until we, the Lord returns or we go to be with him. But, so as I, I, you know, I was struggling with this, I thought, okay, maybe I'll just keep reading. And so let's do that now, as we think about what does this perfection mean. Well, in 17, he says, by this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
how are we able to truly love? How do we know we're actually loving? How do we know we're not just using other people? Being nice to them so we can get something out of it. I mean, the Father, in sending his Son, he's shown us that real love is sacrifice. It's costly. It involves dying to yourself. I mean, that's how Paul uses that exact model to talk about love and marriage in Ephesians 5. But what do you need to be able to do that sacrifice? To enter into messy relationships, to love someone even when they're not lovely. A lot of us are not lovely people. We're not easy to love. How do we love each other in the church? Well, in order to do that, you have to be secure in something. You can't love well if you're constantly looking to everything around you to give you significance and comfort. You can't love well if you're constantly looking for love. I think that's what he's talking about with this fear. Unperfected love is fearful. It, it, needs, it needs significance and love from others. It gets angry and filled with hatred when people aren't doing what we want them to do. And yet we're offered full security in the Father's love. He's paid the penalty for our sin. He's brought us into his family. He's given us Jesus' righteousness. We couldn't be any more secure in any other way. We shouldn't be fearing punishment, as John talks about. If you find yourselves, you find yourself hating others, don't don't just be like, gosh, i got to be nice to that person. Oh, figure out some way to love them better. No, it's, it's... the most deepest level is because you are still insecure and restless. You aren't resting in the Father's love. You're, you're thinking, maybe there's still some wrath in store for me. Maybe I'm not really his child, or at least I'm a lesser child. Think again about the parable of the prodigal son as we close here. The elder brother hated his younger brother. Why? The love of the father was not in him. He, he was not believing in and resting in that love. All he could think about was why he wasn't getting love. He wasn't getting a party thrown for him. And I think when Jesus told that story, he meant for us to be sad about that. To, to long for those who do are, are filled with jealousy and hatred towards others, that they would know and rest in the Father's love. And, and if we're honest, we know that's us so much of the time. It, it is truly amazing when someone actually really loves someone else. A no-strings-attached care. It's so profound, so rare that someone might say when it happens, God abides in us and his love accomplishes its intended purpose in us. Beloved, receive and rest in the Father's love shown to you in Christ. Let that overflow in your life to those around you. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you for how you love us. It's almost hard for us to even comprehend the level of the depth of your love. And yet, in sending Jesus, you bring us into that to start to comprehend it. And we thank you that you give us the Spirit, that we 
might have your love shed in our hearts, and we might cry, Abba, Father. Help us to soak in your love. Help us not to question it. Help us to believe and rest in it. And we pray that would have a radical effect in our lives. We pray we'd be so filled with your love that we would look more and more like your son and our love would overflow into the lives of every person we come in contact with. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.